You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. Um, so good to have you with us. Uh, I am Baba Kapasade, CEO of Toronto Centre. Welcome to our webinar on climate risk in the financial sector that is being held in conjunction with COP26. I really, really love doing these kind of events. Uh, we have uh, a lot of participants from around the world, many agencies, NGOs, uh, government officials. Uh, welcome to all. Since inception in 1998, Toronto Centre has trained more than 15,000 financial authorities from 190 jurisdictions to build more stable, resilient, and inclusive financial systems. Our mission is generally supported by the Global Affairs Canada, International Development Cooperation Agency, the IMF, Jersey Overseas Aid, Comic Relief, and the USAID. In 2015, Toronto Centre began incorporating climate change into our programming because of the substantial implications to global financial stability. Please visit our website to download our new comprehensive toolkit for supervisors. Today, climate change is recognized as a mainstream risk to the financial system. The Bank of Canada and OSFI are consulting with stakeholders and developing climate change scenarios and stress tests that are critical to better understand the resilience of Canada's financial system to a transition to a low carbon economy. This is indeed in line with the undertaking of the International Central, Bank, Central Bankers Network for greening the financial system to mitigate the risk against the impact of climate shocks. In pri the private sector, the UN, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures and Supervisory Standard Setters have ramped up their efforts. The IMF is incorporating climate risk assessment as part of some financial sector assessment programs. However, despite all this panoply of action, much more still needs to be done to meet the Paris targets. Now, it is my honor to welcome our very distinguished speakers. They're important influencers on the international stage. They are His Excellency Alejandro Diaz de Leon Carrillo is the governor of Central Bank of Mexico, he was also voted the best governor of the year. And thank you for coming back to the Toronto Centre event, Governor. Tony Gravel, Deputy Governor, Bank of Canada. Sheila Pazarsbayoglu, Director of Strategy, Policy and Review Department at the IMF and a former board member of Toronto Centre. Andres Portilla, Managing Director, Regulatory Affairs, Institute of International Finance in Washington. Welcome to all our speakers. You've seen their bios. I'd like to also thank Demek Chanakche, who's worked so hard on this event, and our communication coordinator, Casey, who's behind the scenes. Please use the Q&A tab uh, to submit your questions as early as possible. So without further ado, let's begin. Um, Jayla, let me start with you. My very first question is, when are you coming back to the Toronto Centre? 
Yeah, I'm already back. Bye bye. <laughs> so good to have you. Really, really miss you, Chela. So let me ask you at the IMF, you have the chance to reflect on these issues from a broader strategic perspective. Can you please elaborate how is the fund contributing to global efforts to address climate risks, including with respect to financial sector risk oversight? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Babak, and uh, thank you for having me as part of this great panel. Um, this is a very important issue which was discussed very much in Rome at the G20 Leaders Summit and, of course, also at Glasgow now in the last few days. We just published a fund climate note which shows that unchanged global policies will leave 2030 carbon emissions far higher than what is needed to achieve the goal of one and a half degrees Celsius. And policymakers need to address these critical gaps in both ambitions as well as in policies. For many of our developing country members, this is a challenge, but also an opportunity. And many sectors of the economy will need to transform the governments, the business and the financial sector all have to work in um, coordination to transition to clean energy and production. So this is really a historic opportunity in terms of a new um, sustainable and uh, green model of development to allow the planet to remain sustainable, but also at the same time have economic growth and job creation, which is really important for many of our uh, developing country members. We have discussed three key policy pillars in our uh, comprehensive policy package advice. One is carbon pricing. That includes not just price for coal, but also regulations, taxation, and other uh, methods. And to provide robust and predictable price path for really needed investments. And what came out very clearly in Rome, as also in Glasgow, is the need for investment and raising finance for investment. So that brings me to the three, um, four key work streams actually that we have really been focusing on. The first is we are working on a G20 data gaps initiative with other international organizations to address data gaps, most relevant for policymaking for climate change. Second, we just launched a new climate change indicators dashboard earlier this year to provide data for macroeconomic and uh, financial policy analysis. Third, working with the World Bank and OECD in principles for sustainable finance classification so that the investments can be aligned with uh, climate goals. And this is of course, together with the network for greening uh, financial systems and the G20 uh, study group on sustainable, working group for sustainable finance. Fourth, we are developing a framework for climate uh, risk stress testing. This is what is um, what we are using in the context of our financial sector assessment programs, which you know very well and many of uh, the audience hopefully knows about it. We just completed stress tests in two FSAPs, Norway and the Philippines, and we are working on Colombia, South Africa, and the UK. And we're also putting together a framework to assess supervisory, uh, a template to assess supervisory frameworks in considering climate risk to evaluate adequacy of prudential regulation and supervision. So really scaling up our uh, climate-related macro uh, risks, uh, assessment of macro risks, both in terms of our 
Article 4s, which are our annual health check of countries, so our surveillance work, on our financial sector work, on our climate-related uh, capacity development uh, for climate risk regulation and supervision, climate-related insurance stress testing, and climate-related debt management issues. Because as you can imagine, we really need to rethink our debt sustainability analysis going so forward. So there's a lot of work going on. I tried to summarize quickly and can elaborate more as needed. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much, Sheila. I'll give you the gold medal for being concise. But as I'm listening to you, it's very interesting because, I mean, in response to some who are cynical and say it's all about blah, 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 you actually outlined a list of actions, concrete actions. And I know how much you have experience in FSAPs and the fact that, you know, you can take a look at this to make sure these are relevant is really key. And also from a Toronto Centre perspective, and as you know, we've been working on this stuff for six years, but it's really hard to go country to country to country without that kind of an air support, you know, that organizations like IMF can provide to sort of incentivize countries to look at it more systematically. So thank you for all your efforts. Governor, so good to see you again at our program. Uh, you're a major player at the NGFS and are recognized as a respected global authority. Uh, thank you for your leadership in these challenging times. Most financial sector authorities do not have a mandate or an objective to reduce climate change. And who can really blame them? They don't set carbon pricing or anything like that. They essentially have to look at what others are doing and apply oversight. This is uh, true, especially for emerging market economies, uh, yet achieving net zero demands action from all of us. In your opinion, how can emerging market central banks or supervisors make a meaningful positive uh, contribution? Thank you. Well, first, uh, Babak, thank you for the invitation and for the Toronto Center. Uh, well, I think uh, the COVID pandemic has shown that there are shocks that are global and across sectors that have a far reaching impact in terms of breadth, magnitude and so on. And there we, we had no mandate to deal with pandemics. Uh, uh, and it is clear that we had to act promptly, swiftly, vigorously to avoid a financial crisis. With climate change, central banks are in a similar situation with no direct narrow mandate, but with a very clear responsibility of mitigating adverse scenarios and promoting financial sector resilience. In Mexico, we have taken several actions to coordinate our response to climate change at least in, the, in four areas. First, uh, last year, following an in-depth assessment of Mexico's financial system preparedness to tackle climate and environmental risks, Banco de Mexico proposed the creation of the Sustainable Finance Committee within the Financial System Stability Council. All Mexican financial authorities are represented uh, in this uh, work, and the main areas are four. First, developing a sustainable finance taxonomy. Second, integrate climate and environmental, social and governance, ESG risk factors in supervisory and financial market activities. Uh, third, to improve the amount and quality of disclosures and reporting by non-financial and financial institutions. And four, enabling conditions to increase sustainable capital mobilization, which we think it's critical. Banco de Mexico and the committee are leading an intense financial education and capacity building program around ESG disclosures and climate risk analysis. The objective is to align disclosure of climate and environmental information by companies and financial institutions to the standards to be established by the International Sustainability Standards Board, proposed by the International Financial Reporting Standards Foundation, the IFRS, and we think this is critical. 
The second key element is that Banco de Mexico has been engaging and cooperating with other central banks and international organizations to acquire the skills and capacities needed to tackle climate change risks. And here, as you mentioned, we are founding members of the NGFS and we actively participate in all of these efforts. Now, the third element is coordination with private sector initiatives. Uh, in the last few years, we have been in constant dialogue with Mexico's Green Finance Advisory Council, integrated by the main financial associations in the country, as well as development banks. The council has actively worked and create, in creating awareness, as well as developing standards for the issuance of green bonds and promoting the adoption of TCFD uh, disclosure standards. Banco de Mexico has encouraged the creation of private sector-led initiatives, such as the establishment of the Mexican TCFD consortium, to be launched in early December. This consor consortium will promote awareness and exchange of good practices among experts, the issuance of principles and training related to the TCFD recommendations. And the fourth item that I will mention, and the last one, is that we are strengthening our internal capacities. We recently created uh, within the Central Bank a Directorate of Analysis and Policies of Environmental and Social Risks. This will be an area uh, that will work within uh, the, the central bank and with other financial authorities and stakeholders to pursue basically the following goals. To integrate sustainability criteria in the relevant activities of the central bank, to develop relevant metrics to evaluate and monitor the physical and transition risks and the opportunities that drive from the transition to a low carbon and sustainable economy. Third, to collaborate in the analysis of implementation of best practices for the management of loans and assets in the financial system to foster sustainable development and uh, fourth, to develop, promote and disseminate best practice in financial education in the field of sustainable development. So several layers of involvement for a central bank, even though we don't have a, an explicit mandate, but I think we have a very clear responsibility. Thank you, Babak. Thank you very much, Governor. Just a couple of observations here to connect some uh, dots. Uh, again, come, listening to you and Chela, it's very impressive to see the list of actions that are taking place. So, you know, like for those who are cynical about what's going on, it's really interesting to see how various organizations, especially in our sector, are tackling it very methodically. And that's the lens you need to bring. Another point you made, I'm really glad you made that because I was not in my opening remarks, is the link, linkage to the pandemic in a sense that you know, uh, uh, climate change is considered to be one of those things that a frog is boiling in the water, is not jumping out uh, long-term, but we've seen the devastation, the pandemic has wrecked. Climate change is very much the same, it's just much, much slower, but without mm -hmm. vaccination and without the ability to self-isolate. So <laughs> thank you. Now, let me go to Tony. Tony, so good to have you with us. It's always great to have the support from the home team, uh, Bank of Canada. Uh, the, at the Bank of Canada, you are engaging with global and domestic partners to build your analytical capacity and integrate climate-related risks into financial stability analysis. What are the overarching risks you see on the horizon? Thanks. Well, thank you, and thank you for being invited to this panel and being among such uh, impressive colleagues on the panel. Um, I think a lot of what I'll say will overlap with what Chayla and the governor just mentioned, uh, we are a central bank uh, 
and uh, a lot of the work we're doing is both to assess uh, risk to climate, uh, risk emanating from climate change to the financial system and the macroeconomy, and also to support um, the capacity building that the financial sector needs. So, um, but I thought I could take a little bit of a step back and then, you know, um, our actions to mitigate climate change will affect um, the, uh, uh, lead to massively restructuring uh, global economies, everybody's economy. Um, uh, you'll see certain sectors uh, shrink in terms of the, and particularly emission sensitive sectors shrink significantly in terms of economic presence uh, as time goes on. And, uh, and I think the example I bring up is uh, the, uh, the restructuring uh, that we saw in terms of the uh, high tech. Uh, so all of you guys might remember when you first started in university, I, I'm, I'm a little older, so I, when I started university, we were using uh, mainframes for computing power to do our econometric work. And uh, as, as, you, as, as you know, now uh, internet and, and computing power is embedded everywhere in our lives, uh, including my fridge. Uh, so that you've seen this kind of change over time. But the thing is the climate change, uh, the, the need, the, um, the structure that we'll see as a result of us trying to mitigate climate change is going to be that, but on steroids uh, in terms of uh, economic restructuring. So society's effort to mitigate the fiscal risk related to climate change will also generate another kind of risk, transition risk, uh, which is the risk that uh, certain parts of the economy will shrink, as I mentioned, and asset values of uh, uh, across the, the financial system could be subject to uh, sharp declines in valuation, which might generate uh, credit and, and market losses, and it might increase the stress on the financial system. So uh, part of our work is uh, trying to understand that risk to the financial system, but the other more meta risk, if you will, uh, at least in terms of measuring in decades, is that the financial sector will not have the plumbing or the infrastructure in place to properly or effectively reallocate capital to enable the transition to net zero. And part of the work we're doing with OSFI, and as the governor of uh, Bank of Mexico mentioned, is to provide and build capacity, this kind of plumbing, if you will, to the financial sector. And without it, we have, we're at risk of having uh, capital allocated not to the most um, uh, effective parts of the economy in terms of mitigating climate change. And I'll keep my comments short. Well, Tony, thank you so much. There's a couple of things, and I see a hand, I see Chayla's hand. Uh, I don't know if she still has a question. I'll come back to her in a second. But just a couple of things to uh, uh, in response to you. I don't know if you remember, but I, uh, you and I met with uh, uh, our friend Timothy Antoine, the governor of Central Bank of uh, the ECB, in uh, February of 2020, just before the onset of the pandemic. And that was a very important conversation for me as I was listening, because climate was all over it. And you influenced my thinking at that point about asset prices, transition risk. And that's where Canada and Mexico have a lot in common as resource dependent countries. Transition risk is really where all the rage is at. You know, Dealing with the physical risks is you do what you can. It's a transition risk that is really, you know, shows who has what it takes to be Proactive. Chela, did you want to make an intervention? No, okay. So uh, I think Chela was just stretching. Uh, going to Andres, uh, you're representing the IIF, which is the Global Association of Financial Industry, big banks, with more than 400 members from 
more than 17 countries. First of all, thank you for being courageous to come to an event of regulators. We're not going to hold it at all against you. Your private sector perspective is very important to us. Um, so your mission is to support the financial industry in the prudent management of risks, amongst uh, many other things. In your opinion, how climate risk management practices are evolving in your industry? What are the early lessons from engaging with regulatory authorities on these issues? Thank you. Thank, thank you for, for the invitation, as you say, for the opportunity to be uh, among this panel with, with regulatory and, and policy authorities. And I guess, uh, you know, a number of the speakers have already referred to the need for collaboration and exchange with the private sector. So I guess you're doing this in this event and it's great to be here. Um, I'll start by describing this both as an evolution and a revolution. And I say this because um, on one hand, and as I will explain later, um, what we're seeing here is an evolution of practices in terms of the models, methodologies, uh, the data that is used to assess um, climate-related risks. But I say it's a revolution also because of the speed with which this is happening, both in the private sector and in the public sector. And, and just, for example, listening to, to Jayla um, describing the number of policies, initiatives, programs, and, and actions that are taking place in the, in the public sector tells you about uh, the revolution that this is really representing. But I guess everyone, and particularly the financial uh, services sector, is working in a methodical and systematic understanding of this type of risks. And there is a lot of there are a lot of actions being um, taken uh, place right now within the, the financial sector. Um, just take a look in terms of uh, disclosures, uh, the adoption of PCFD, how you, know, you got over 2,600 uh, corporates, many of them uh, financial institutions adopting this, 40% um, uh, of them are financial institutions adopting these, these practices. What, what we're seeing in the financial sector is the following. Um, I would say the great majority of institutions are seeing uh, climate-related risk as a risk driver. They take a sort of a horizontal view of this type of risk. So they don't consider climate risk as a risk in itself, but a risk driver that is affecting the other type of risks, primarily credit risk, but not only. Uh, there is a lot of focus on credit risk. There is a lot of focus in trying to understand how climate risk, both from a physical and, and transition perspective, are affecting revenues, um, capacity of payment, asset values, cash flows, etc. Um, that intrinsic understanding it's, it's essential to be able to, to manage this type uh, of risks. Um, authorities, regulatory authorities are working on this. You've seen uh, the PRA in the UK, you've seen the ECB in Frankfurt, you have seen uh, the MAS in Singapore describing expectations from supervisors as to what banks need to be doing. Um, those are incredibly helpful uh, in promoting this type of practices. Um, the BCBS will be working in this area and we expect something at the end of the month precisely on supervisory practices. I guess uh, the issue of harmonizing those practices, harmonizing the way uh, the expectations are, are uh, formulated will be uh, uh, of essential importance to promote these practices and wide adoption uh, among the, the financial services sector. Um, 
one specific area where we see a lot of activity is uh, scenario um, planning and stress testing. Um, we have counted um, at least 28 of those exercises being supervisory led. Um, this is incredibly helpful. Uh, the work of the NGFS has been instrumental, for example, in developing common scenarios that many authorities are using. These are being leveraged by financial institutions um, themselves. But while there are common factors such as these uh, common scenarios, the methodologies, uh, the results, uh, the timeframes, uh, the models being used are all different. So there is a lot of fragmentation already happening. And this is the revolution type that I was referring to. So trying to promote more harmonized practices in this area is going to be incredibly important um, to, to promote that level of coordination and to promote um, uh, kind of a consistent approach to that. I'll end with this. And, and there is a quote from, from Carolyn Rogers now at, at, at Basel Committee and, and moving to the Bank of Canada very soon, uh, where she was saying as prudential supervisors, we're very focused on the impact of climate on banks. And that part of the measuring the impact uh, and, and the extent of those risks. We're not concerned about the, the impact of banks on climate, but I'd say these are prudential supervisors, but I'm saying authorities are of course uh, uh, mindful of the impact of, of banks on climate. I think we're gonna have an opportunity to talk about those issues uh, later on during this panel. Thank you, Andres. This was actually very interesting. You could be the ambassador for supervisors here. So I think all kinds of conflict right, left and center. One of the things you said that really struck me is you said you talked about credit risk and all of these connections to uh, climate change and climate risk. What's fascinating is we've had a lot of tough time in the beginning to try to convince supervisors that these are legitimate risks that need to be looked at in the context of climate because they're all seized in fighting the last war, the last uh, global financial crisis, legitimately. I mean, all of those things can still happen. But the point is to understand that climate risk is here and it is a legitimate risk to the financial sector. And that's why the IMF is uh, uh, piloting it in FSAPs and others. So thanks for connecting these dots for us. Uh, I just want to make it a little bit uh, interesting for the audience. So we're going to go take a few questions from the audience. We have some excellent ones here. And then we go to the round two after a couple of questions. Uh, Governor, I want to give you this first question. Um, uh, it's actually a very interesting one. Uh, in the case of developing countries, how could, uh, um, what could the private sector and, this, and the economy as a whole do because they're also fighting COVID, right? And this question probably is very best uh, place to you because Mexico is at the forefront of fighting COVID. And uh, all of this, you're dealing with that, and yet you're taking leadership positions here. So how can you chew gum and walk at the same time? Thank you. Well, uh, I think you were highlighting that um, they are analogous, or there are some uh, parallelism between uh, COVID and um, climate change. The COVID high-frequency challenge with immediate uh, 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 risks and, and perils. And I think uh, on, on the climate change, uh, low frequency trend uh, risks that would materialize in a very uh, unfortunate uh, outcomes unless we uh, start uh, doing something more vigorously. I think we need to be mindful of both. I, I think this is not the first time that we have uh, faced uh, short-term immediate challenges and more medium uh, and long-term oriented challenges. I, I think uh, what we need to, to, to do is, uh, I would say, try to adopt 
uh, an element that all, all financial institutions, all private agents do not have uh, a blind spots uh, and have clarity of what they need to do. Uh, in an emerging market for a very long time, we have had, I would say, uh, not necessarily uh, a standard approach towards environment protection. So we don't have we have to be worried not only about climate change, but also about environmental degradation. And our regulation and enforcement of regulation has not necessarily been uh, up to the challenge. So we need to be mindful about, about, about those two elements. And probably we can even take advantage about the climate change dynamism and uh, uh, emphasis to really also tackle those more, uh, uh, I would say locally uh, challenges about environmental degradation that go hand in hand with climate change. Uh, but I think we can use that, that momentum. Obviously it's very challenging because we have less policy space. Fiscal space has shrunk uh, in a very significant way uh, in emerging markets because uh, of COVID. And that's why probably one of the key uh, issues about uh, the COP26 and, and, and one of the challenges we have as we move forward is how do we deploy sufficient resources, not only in advanced economies that have proven uh, in the last year and a half that they have more policy space uh, than we had imagined before, but in the countries that need the most. In the countries that have no policy space, emerging and developing econ economies, how can we put a lot of capital into, into uh, work, especially because they can have the most uh, significant contribution to, towards uh, climate change? Thank you, Governor. Of course, uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's critical to have that leadership. And of course, uh, you, know, you, you can put on top of it the, the overlay of the toxic political environment that pervades around the world with polarities and everything else. So it is a really, really a big challenge here. Chela, um, just because you know everything about everything, I'm going to ask you this question. Is, uh, you're not with the Basel, but you have a lot of experience with them. Someone's asking, how do you think climate risk could be addressed in the Basel framework? Okay, please take a shot at this. I know you're not representing Basel. Go ahead, please. <laughs> so before that, I actually was trying to raise my hand this time around because I was just going to add uh, a little bit to what Alejandro was saying which, um, and you actually started it by saying something our managing director keeps saying, we have to chew gum and walk at the same time, meaning that we need to address the current crisis as well as the, the climate crisis. And there, what we see with COVID, there's a lot of divergence. Many countries are, are pushed back because they don't have the fiscal space. And the critical issue is to make sure that, you know, going forward, both in terms of fighting COVID but also fighting climate change that uh, many countries get support, both public support in terms of concessional lending and grants, but also um, commercial uh, private uh, finance. And I'm sure we will discuss it further uh, in this discussion. You know, what are the deterrents for, there's a lot of savings uh, out there. It's just, they are not necessarily going to uh, some of the countries which really need them. And I'm sure we will discuss this going forward. I was thinking when you were talking earlier that in many of the FSB and Basel discussions about five years ago, whenever climate change came, everyone pushed their chair back, especially the governors, because this is just a topic so uh, different to them. But it's very different now, as uh, the governor mentioned, many, uh, both governor and also uh, deputy, as Tony mentioned, you know, most central banks are really uh, focusing on these issues now. I think before we talk about what Basel needs to do, and there's also a, a question in the chat about capital, um, 
you know, should we have capital requirements on climate-related investments? I think we have to be very careful that we have a strong climate information architecture before we start putting regulations, capital requirements, and other uh, other rules, because otherwise we will distort um, uh, decision making. So I would really uh, put on the table, and that's what Basil has been saying as well, the importance of having the right information, making sure that there is not um, greenwashing, because this is going to be critical to safeguard financial stability, foster science sustainable finance, and improve market confidence. And once that information architecture is there, once stress testing is more advanced, then we could think of, okay, are there things like favorable tax treatment in savings products, like uh, retirement plans, life insurance products, and other types of um, instruments that could incentivize financing or, or bringing um, financing to, to these uh, much needed um, areas. But I think we have to be very careful before we jump into um, capital requirements and other uh, incentives. That's very good. And uh, yes, uh, we have a lot more to say about greenwashing, but your context is actually very interesting here. Tony, I'm going to turn to you. And since I ambushed Chela with a question that was sort of a little bit out of the box, I'm going to try to see if you can, as a central banker, sort of provide a broader macro comment here. Considering the current environment where there are shortages with various automotive components, and that's just that supply chain shortages are the big conversation. Do you feel that this would could be the ideal time for automotive sector to accelerate the implementation of climate control actions between Mexico and Canada, both have manufacturing assembly within their countries? How do you assist to drive a quicker implementation in this industry? The question is very specific to the industry, but feel free to broaden it out to the broader economy. Thank you. Um. Okay, I'm going to resort to some some basic economics to some degree. I mean, the economics is all about incentives, really, uh, and and putting in place the right incentives to to do things. So, one of the incentives that's already underway, and it's been mentioned by Chayla, is that uh, various countries are looking at uh, policy changes that are that include uh, carbon taxes, that can include regulation, that that puts in some sense or the other a higher cost on. Uh, in high, in, uh, highly intensive in, uh, uh, greenhouse gas emission emitting activities. Um, so one obvious way to incentivize a switch to electric vehicles is, is a carbon tax on, on fossil fuels or gasoline. I think one of the interesting things about uh, electric, uh, electric vehicles is there's also another, and then that's kind of capturing the, uh, the externality related to the cost that ca carbon emissions uh, impose on the on the climate and and uh, uh, so you're trying to capture that. But the, an interesting thing about electric uh, vehicles is there's another uh, externality and it's called uh, network externality or uh, the catch twenty two externality. And if you will, one of that externality is related to the fact that if you're not a lot of people will not buy electric vehicles because there's no charging stations along the route to whatever they want to travel or or where they work. Um, and without charging stations, there's nobody wants to buy electric vehicles. But uh, uh, um, but to put in place charging stations, you need a lot of electric vehicles. So there's no incentive to put the charging stations in place. So that, like I said, that's the catch-22 externality. So another kind of uh, 
a way to get uh, um, uh, more uh, the industry to move towards uh, electric vehicle production is is to ensure or find ways or policies to enhance the number of charging stations around the world. I think finally, there's another kind of externality out there is the innovation externality. And, and, and there's a literature out there about uh, risk taking and how uh, uh, you might want to adjust uh, the, the risk exposure of innovators so that they take more risk in a sense. So you share the risk across, for example, uh, governments subsidizing fundamental research, for example. So there's there's that externality as well. So that those those are kind of the, the, the ways that um, the policies, the, the climate related policies in terms of the governments are already thinking about, and it just in some respects, uh, we in, in the central bank community are, are talking about these, we're doing research in this area to refine those kind of uh, uh, issues. And also, I think we're just at the end of the day, like I said, trying to provide the, the infrastructure, the plumbing, the, the capacity to the financial sector both in data, as, as Chayla uh, uh, noted, but in sort of how to think about these things and, and map those to what they care about in terms of credit risk and equity risk, if you will. Thank you very much, Tony. This is, uh, you articulated it very well. A couple of observations here. I mean, kind of what you're saying about the infrastructure is very similar to uh, build it and they will come. You know, the field of dreams is actually very true. And the other thing you uh, talked about is electric vehicles and electric grid. And of course, I mean, I used to work in the energy file with uh, some cabinet ministers. And at the end of the day, you really need clean energy. Otherwise, what's the point of plugging into the grid, right? So the questions are even more pronounced than that. And we see that right now. The oil prices are going up. Uh, the Biden administration is imploring OPEC <laughs> to produce more oil in the middle of COP26, all these things are going on. And finally, I don't know, what is it with central bankers and Canadian central bankers talking about plumbing? I've heard that from you twice today. I heard from Mark Carney <laughs> in a, an article and the chair of our board, Stefan Engvist says the work of Toronto Center is uh, plumbers teaching plumbers. So I think it's very apt, all of these. So let's go back to the structured uh, uh, formats. The questions that are left on the table, we'll come back to them. They're all very good. In fact, before we do that, Chela, somebody asked me a question here about the IMF. So you can think about that and we'll come back to that. It's uh, I just, uh, I'll find it. And Oh, here, um, no, sorry, I don't have it here, but I'll come back to it because I know where it is. So Chela, let's start with you. Um, uh, let me move to green financing issue. Uh, do you, and also, you know, what you just alluded to is set up pretty much for this question on greenwashing. Uh, do you think green financing will become mainstream in the financial sector? What are the tools we have to make this happen and to guard against greenwashing? And let me put my spin on it. Not a day goes by that I don't open up a mutual fund or ETF uh, prospectus and, oh, it's green fund, all of that. And then you look at it and the same companies <laughs> that you can buy in a typical index uh, for much, much cheaper MER. And yet everybody's taking the benefit of all these uh, you know, green uh, announcements. So greenwashing is really critical. And how do you and I really know that the money we invest in our retirement or for our kids' education is actually really ESG compliant, right? So go ahead, please. So great, uh, great question. And um, I'm just gonna advertise a little bit our global financial stability report, uh, which just came out uh, about, just about a month ago at the annual meetings, where there was a, a chapter on sustainable funds and um, climate funds in particular, 
showing that they have grown much faster than conventional funds in the recent past. It shows that 2020 flows to uh, interest climate team funds grew by 48% uh, in terms of assets under management. So that's uh, really good. And also you see that conventional investment funds are increasingly factoring ESG considerations into their investment processes. They have started to employ negative screens and are using stewardship to influence firms behavior. This was also discussed a lot at the, at the COP, uh, you know, the, the work that Mark Carney has been uh, pushing. And the number of asset managers and asset owners that have signed up to the principles for responsible investment more than doubled from about 1,400 in 2015 to more than 3,000 3, in 2020. So these are all very positive uh, developments and I think we will see much more. But I think, as I was saying before, what will create a lot more financing, uh, green financing to be mainstream is really um, on two areas that we need uh, progress. One is, as I mentioned before, twice the climate information architecture. And the second is proper regulatory oversight, which is uh, really critical to improve um, market uh, confidence. So how can we classify assets and activities as green versus polluting? And how do we standardize this? So the EU came up with a taxonomy to mitigate greenwashing and provide clarity to investors. The question is, how do we have such classification much more uh, prominent in other countries and much more uh, standardized classification across countries? Because we all know that capital flows across borders. So there's no, uh, it's not gonna help us to have a taxonomy in each country, which doesn't necessarily then uh, become more standardized. I think that's the key area and we have been discussing with our World Bank and OECD colleagues on how to partner in terms of the, if you like, the principles for such classification across uh, countries. Yeah, Shela, that's very reasonable. And also just another observation, I guess if you live long enough, you see some things come back over and over again. I used to work for a very large institutional investor, Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, and back in 2005, 2006, uh, they were the original signatory to the UNPRI, Principles for Responsible Investing. ESG was first coined at that time. But the CEOs at that time of these institution investors, I thought that's something very clever. Rather than relegating all of this to the PR departments, they actually put it in the mandate of their investment, public market investment portfolios, demanded disclosure. And that's really important. And it's interesting because fast forward 10, 15 years later, some people are just beginning to discover ESG. So it's important to go back and look at what some of the others are doing. So thank you for that. Um, Governor, let's come back to you. Chela did a bit of uh, mild advertising. So I'm gonna take that as a license to do it ourselves. Uh, you and us have been talking together about the possibility of Toronto Center, Bank, Bank de Mexico, uh, some courses, America's courses, I guess, if you will, for climate risk. So. I don't want to preempt that and I don't want to put you in a corner. So you know, those courses will take place if uh, if that works, but you know, we're really looking forward to that opportunity with you. Uh, now, moving to the question, some emerging economies with development agendas are taking a lead in setting green targets. Could you please elaborate on the role that central banks or financial authorities of emerging markets can play to facilitate that green 
transition. And as you recall, Tony earlier talked about how difficult the transition is. And in your case, I mentioned the point about Canada and Mexico sharing the, the challenges of transition because of our resource-based economies. Go ahead, please. Well, uh, uh, let, let me start saying that uh, in emerging, emerging market and developing economies, we are facing um, the financing challenge probably is one of the key, the key elements. And uh, I think, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, many of the world's lowest cost mitigation opportunities exist precisely in emerging and developing economies. And we can have a large decarbonization impact and larger positive uh, externalities than uh, the same resources applied in advanced economies. Uh, and, and I think this is one critical element. It is essential to move from a bad equilibrium with high financing costs and insufficient green investment to a climate-friendly funding uh, sources at scale for these countries at genuinely low financing costs. And I think financial authorities, I would say, uh, in emerging markets, uh, also in advanced economies uh, uh, and multilateral institutions, should try to see how these can work uh, in, in a timely and speedy fashion and not wait until the incentives play their own uh, implicit role. I think the discussion should be mindful that emerging markets uh, have less space, as we already highlighted because of the COVID. Uh, I think unlocking international funding uh, would be uh, a very, very important. There is a need for these low cost uh, financing. And, and probably one way to, to do it is literally develop a new asset class. I think uh, we can leverage on MDBs and also uh, regional and, and local development banks capacity to create a new global asset class to finance climate action. I think we should, uh, uh, we could include, uh, for, for example, portfolio guarantees like first loss, loss or something like that uh, in a portfolio. And this would allow for uh, some of these uh, resources to really be deployed at the global scale. Uh, and I think these credit enhancements could significantly allow for um, investors that uh, usually want uh, uh, higher ratings uh, to, to deploy resources. So this type of, we can even say ETF type of a structure could develop uh, these uh, uh, financing uh, alternatives. And also let me highlight another one, which I, I, I'm not sure it has been uh, discussed enough, uh, which is it relates with how can we finance uh, uh, changing of technology, uh, how can we can incentivize even car and car production to move into more uh, uh, less hydrocarbon and so on, which is uh, export import banks, uh, I think could facilitate uh, a low cost transfer of, of low carbon technologies, which are fast developing. And I remember in my previous years, uh, many years ago, uh, being the head of Mexico's Exim Bank, there was a lot of uh, project financing with renewable uh, resources that was not done at a massive scale. It, 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 they were important projects, but I think that could be done at a massive scale. And I'm sure that advanced economies would see very uh, as a very profitable uh, venture to uh, put those technologies in, into emerging and developing economies with low cost of financing and long-term financing so the key challenge is here, how can we uh, deploy CapEx, the adequate CapEx financing in a timely uh, and sizable fashion? And I, and I think a true uh, green global network of exim banks and development banks that, that combines advanced economies and emerging economies could play a critical role in making uh, so much those much needed projects uh, a reality. Yes, Governor. In fact, uh, you know, it's very interesting how you connected a dot on another issue that was sort of relegated to the margins for a long time, blended finance, right? So in a sense, what you're talking about is another uh, iteration of that. 
bring in private uh, public uh, financing into a development need and I can't see anything, a better application of it. And you really persuasively made the case for that. So thank you. Andres, turning to you, uh, your industry's leadership is critical, right? We can now uh, try to have all the best rules to supervise, but it really comes to the industry and industry acting in making progress on net zero. Not a day goes by when a major financial or other corporation doesn't announce a new ESG initiative or green investments. And they take large ads in papers, actually. What is the industry doing to make sure that these pledges are followed through with real actions? In other words, how can IIF and the financial industry help foster meaningful action to make progress towards net zero and at the same time guard against greenwashing? Thank you. <clears throat> Back that that's um that's a great and a difficult question, uh, but it's an important one. Um, I, I wanted to refer, however, if you allow me briefly to the previous topic about capital and, and regulatory approaches, because I, I think it's a quite important um, topic. I agree fully with what Jayla was was saying um, about this cautioning to to rushing to to develop a sort of a regulatory capital based approach to these issues. I, that's that's the question that the Basel Committee itself is asking um, about: is is the Basel framework suitable for this type of risks? Um, you know, we have a um, one-year horizon assignment of capital for unexpected losses, right? Is this the type of framework that we should be using for climate risk? It it might be that they are already included in Basel. You know, if there are risk drivers that affect credit risk, and credit risk is well regulated within Basel. It might be that it is already embedded, but that we need to make adjustments, add-ons, et cetera, to the framework. It's, it's an important question. I don't think anyone has the answer yet. The Basel Committee itself is looking at the issue. Banks themselves are looking as to how best to manage this risk, and, and there must be a capital dimension. But I think the methodological and data issues that we have highlighted remain as, as key challenges that still need to be worked on. But it, it's it's work in progress. But, but again, I agree fully with what Jayla was doing. In terms of transition, absolutely. Um, and, I, and I think, you, I guess you should sort of think of this in terms of what do you want to achieve at the end? You know, you could perhaps uh, take an approach through which you decarbonize completely the portfolios of financial institutions. And that would be just put financial institutions on the side and say, you will have nothing to do with polluting activities and industries, you will be on the side. But I would say then the financial services industry would not have any meaningful role or impacting actual emissions by the corporate sector. The other approach could be the financial sector needs to be part of that transition. It needs to be working with its clients helping them in that transition to actually achieve meaningful uh, emission reductions. And I think that's, that's the preferred approach, but you obviously need to set goals. You obviously need to embrace metrics. You obviously need to make a commitment that you're going to reduce the financing of emissions. Um, but at the same time, you need to set ambitious goals on the financing of transition financing the changes in technology, uh, financing all the necessary actions, which as we know are going to be, you know, multi-trillion um, of dollars activities that 
you know, the, the, the public sector does not have the resources to, to, to finance that transition. So I think that the role of the private sector is going to be absolutely fundamental. Uh, my last comments, um, I, I think everything that is happening right now in Glasgow, the GFANS initiative is providing a, a very good base uh, for that type of coordinated action by the financial services sector. I think uh, in terms of the metrics that are being discussed, in terms of the targets that are being um, adopted, in terms of the commonality of methodologies and metrics. You know, we need to be able to compare bank A and bank B transition plans and, and, and commitments, right? Uh, we need to have a common framework. It's been developed. Um, there, is no, there are no standards. These are guidelines. And I think rightly so, because the, the methodologies and the science behind this, it's still evolving. But I think that common framework is, is a good one. Uh, it's one that the IIF has supported and that our members are embracing, but that level of commitment needs to be there. And I think it's good that those questions um, are asked for the financial sector. Thank you, Andres. So I'm, I'm not one to always, you know, to turn on an advocate for the banks or private sector, but you're saying something very interesting, which is uh, what I'm hearing behind what you're saying is that what you're looking for is some degree of uh, regulatory certainty, you know, like the banks need to know which direction they got to go and then they will go and then economics incentives follow. Sometimes we do it the other way around. We say it's all about you know, returns and capital, but, you know, policy has definitely a big role to play in that certainty of decisions and returns. So thank you for that. Tony, let me end with you in terms of our structure questions. And, you know, we have a really live, uh, you know, exciting number of questions out there. So we're going to get through as many of them as possible from the public. Um, so Tony, the Bank of Canada and uh, the Office of Superintendent <coughs> of Financial Institutions, as I mentioned in my opening, have been working on a pilot project to use climate change scenarios to better understand the risks to the financial system related to a transition to a low carbon economy. Can you tell us a little bit about this uh, important project and uh, are you gleaning anything at the moment? Are you learning anything as you go? Go ahead, please. So I'll give you a little bit on the objective of the project. So I think at a, at a obvious level, I think it's building our own capacity, OSTFIs and ourselves, to assess the impact of climate risk on the financial system. Um, and, and, and we're doing that by developing scenarios, uh, by understanding how uh, these scenarios and the climate pathways affect various sectors and then how those sectors eventually affect the credit risk and the market risk faced by financial institutions. Uh, what the, a second and equally important objective is to, as I mentioned before, build the financial institution's capacity to measure uh, and understand their own exposures to climate risk uh, and be in a position to disclose those uh, exposures aligned with TCFD uh, and, and eventually uh, also, more kind of more practically, is to provide uh, the industry with a kind of a, a, a standard, a template, a set of scenarios and sectorial outcomes for them as, the, as, as a whole, as the industry as a whole to use. Uh, so this is, we're trying to increase the standardization to some extent of the scenarios out there for Canada and for the Canadian FIs. Um, I think the scope of the project, just to go over this, it's, it's basically, it involves uh, ourselves and OSFI, of course, and also a small set of participants uh, in, in the Canadian financial sector, two large banks and four insurers, two life insurers and, and two PNC insurers. Uh, 
just to, to get this going. Uh, uh, we, we didn't want to roll it out with a, a large set of participants, just so it would be, we'd be still working on it next year probably. Uh, I think the other part of the scope is that we look at the 10 most uh, inten carbon intensive sectors in, in globally and in Canada. So we're not looking at every parts of the economy, but we're looking at the, the most carbon intensive sectors because we're more interested in transition risk, that restructuring risk that I talked about that will have negative impacts on certain assets of financial institutions. Uh, how is the, the, the pilot working out? So, so we, of course, like I said, we are building uh, and creating scenarios focused on transition risk but and and they're aligned with the NJFS scenarios, and especially they're 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 aligned because we contributed heavily to the NJFS scenarios. But they are more granular, uh, both in terms of sectors and geographically, that are currently available in NJF, NJFS scenarios. So we wanted to have a more granular sectors, sectors that are relevant for Canada, and also we wanted to have a bit more understanding of how Canada, in particular, is impacted by these ostensibly global scenarios. Um, uh, and they also include a sharp transition scenario, where a scenario where the, the, the policy or the carbon taxes, if you will, the implicit policy is delayed. And then, and once they're, and because they're delayed, they have to uh, be a bit more harsh starting in 2030, for example, to catch up and meet the two degree or the 1.5 degree Celsius uh, objectives of climate mitigation. Um, these scenarios give you pathways to the two degree and 1.5 degree uh, uh, mitigation via one implicit policy, and it's an implicit carbon tax. It's a we call it a shadow carbon tax. It's basically, it's assumed in the model. These are general equilibrium models that the there's an there's a there's a tool out there, a policy tool out there that forces the economy to achieve the 1.5 or the two degree uh, climate mitigation target. Um, and then finally, I think that the, the most, uh, the newest part, the most involved part is working directly with the individual FIs uh, as we, what we do is provide the sectorial impacts, the negative income impacts on these various sectors. For example, oil and gas has over the next uh, 30 year, a very negative impact on uh, the net income of that sector. And that is fed to the, the FIs. The FIs use a bottom-up process where they, they sample a few of their current sort of uh, assets, be it uh, uh, corporates that they hold either in terms of uh, loans or other forms of credit or in terms of equity. And they sort of do a bottom-up analysis given that they know that net income losses uh, to calculate the credit risk related to those. I think what I can tell you uh, is that one of the lessons learned, of course, is there's a lot of work to do uh, in providing and developing these capacities. Uh, we need more standardization of risk assessment methods. We are trying to provide a little bit of a standardization via a standardized scenario, but there's a lot to do at a more granular level. We need, uh, as, as, as others have mentioned, improved data availability, information availability. And then, we, and, and then I think one of the linchpin things is we need to better have uh, uh, stronger climate disclosures at the corporate level so that the financial institutions themselves understand uh, their own individual assets, uh, climate exposure or uh, corporate, if you will, exposure. Um, and we're planning to release the final report, the results of the report at the end of this month or early into December. Uh, the report will have, there's a summary 
large summary report, but also we're releasing uh, uh, several technical documents basically to serve as a how-tos. So we're really trying to enhance the industry as a whole, not just the six uh, participants in the project, but the industry as a whole capacity to do, uh, to measure and understand their climate-related risk exposures. Um, so these technical documents are should be used as how-tos. We're also going to release in, in relatively fine detail the, the data underlying the scenarios themselves, the sectorial impacts, the negative income by, impacts by sector as well so that uh, uh, financial institutions can grab that and, and reading the technical documents would should hopefully be in a better uh, able to do their own uh, risk assessment process. Thank you. This sounds like a very uh, comprehensive diagnostics, if you will. And uh, how much of this is, uh, would you say, being replicated within the NGFS community? Are you sharing information with some of the other peer jurisdictions? That are doing this. Uh, well, I think it, it's it's uh, well. We're the NGFS itself is definitely sharing and, and continually evolving the scenario aspects of the work. Um, I think uh, we're just probably uh, as uh, Andres pointed out. There's roughly twenty to thirty uh, other jurisdictions doing some form of uh, stress tests. Um, they're not all the same right now, given the the the, the state of the art of the scenario analysis. As I mentioned, our scenario had to be a bit more refined in terms of granular uh, level and both in terms of, and also in terms of geograph geographic detail. Um, so I think the intent of the NJFS is always to share notes and always to improve on that. But I think just on terms of the stress testing, it's not quite uh, there, but it's, it's, it will happen. That's fine. I mean, uh, sometimes you can't really wait for a top-down approach. The bottom-up is always very useful and you could inform what they're doing and help other jurisdictions who yeah. may not be as starting as early as you have. So let's go to the uh, uh, favorite part here after listening to your uh, comments and remarks to the audience Q&A. Let's try to see if we can address as many of them as possible. I'll go back and forth in terms of the order of questions that I've received. Some of them I think have already been addressed through other questions. So Chela, this is a question for you. Has the IMF developed climate change uh, models uh, that have been issued would carry out the uh, climate risk uh, stress tests? If so, is this model publicly available or not? Thank you. So the fund is working on, on stress tests together with the um, countries that we are doing FSAFs. We, as uh, Tony also said, this is work in progress. We do publish FSAFs and of course the methodology underlying that particular country's financial sector assessment program does get um, uh, published. But as I said, this is um, really uh, trying to understand better the country specific circumstances, sector specific circumstances, and being able to look at different types of risk, the physical risk, the transition risk, and, and so on. So we don't yet have a, you know, a, a methodology that could be used by all countries. But what we are doing is using these pilot um, FSAPs, if you like, to um, stress test our own stress test and then be able to come up with a, a methodology that can form the basis uh, for many countries. Okay, great, thank you. And you also did mention something about Article 4. Uh, you'll be making some uh, I guess observations through them as well, right? When it comes to climate scenarios. Right. So so there, that's um, really important because we're looking at the 20 largest emitters 
and really strongly encouraging the coverage of mitigation policies in those countries. And then for other countries, we are more looking at adaptation. There are some small states which adaptation is really critical. So depending on country circumstances, we are looking at um, uh, covering these uh, mitigation and adaptation and, and finance issues in our article course. Okay, thanks. Andres, I'm going to go to with you on the next question. I mean, uh, IIF, I guess, is associated with big banks, but you know the lines are blurred as a cross-sectoral world, and you probably have some major insurance companies or companies that have major insurance involvement. There's a question here about: Are there any policy initiatives or interventions uh, that can help uh, prod along the, in the insurance industry's participation efforts to mitigate climate risk and support the growth of green economy? Well, I mean, on the one hand insurance has been at the forefront. They were dealing with climate change before it even was called climate. But I'm wondering, do you have any insights into this question? Absolutely, Babak. And there is, just to, to make a, a precision, the IAF has close to 500 members. Roughly 55% of them are banks, but the rest are insurance companies, asset managers, and, and other types of financial institutions. So um, we have a very active participation from the insurance community uh, in our work. Um, the IAIS, on the supervisory side has been doing a lot. They have recently released um, additional guidance on, on climate risk. But as you say, if you look from, from the physical risk perspective, the insurance industry has been dealing with this risk for, for quite some time. Um, now they are even refining their, their practices even more. Um, and then they have on the other side, their, their capacity as institutional investors. And I think that's an important uh, role that insurance companies are playing because of the size of their balance sheets in terms of, of being good stewards of, of their investments in, in terms of the ESG requirements that they are placing um, as investors. So both, both sides of the balance sheet in terms of the managing of their liabilities um, an increasing uh, evolution of uh, climate uh, risk management, particularly from the long-term perspective that insurance companies take, which suits very well with, with the type of risk that we're talking about. So lots of actions, both from the private sector, but also on the supervisory side through the IIS. Great, thanks. Uh, Governor, there's a question here from our friend, Augustine. It's actually an interesting dilemma here. Uh, says, I am from a non-bank financial re regulatory authority in Sub-Saharan Africa, Botswana, and want to know how, how you, well, you, I guess all of us, are going to bring us on board in terms of uh, bringing our attention to climate change and environmental risks. The reason for that is that we do not have the mandate and objectives to implement uh, this, and I don't see, see that happening anytime soon. So here we have like a climate supervisory partisan, if you will, right? Like uh, partisanos, like trying to do what they can do. So what advice and guidance do you have for them? Uh, not so much for their jurisdiction per se, but in your NGFS and talk to various countries developed and developing, how do you uh, advise people or help people to move beyond that mandate, uh, you know, dogmatic mandate restriction? Nope, that's not our job. Go ahead, please, thank you. Well, uh, let, let, let me start saying that um, there is a tendency that uh, only the risks that are immediate uh, deserve our attention and that the risks that are a little bit more medium term, um, uh, we can wait uh, until a better time to address them. I think, um, to be very honest, I think climate change is already materializing in credit risk. 
I think, for example, if you look at the PG&E uh, bankruptcy, Chapter 11, uh, uh, that started last year and so on, it really reflects the combination of some of the climate change effects and also some of the challenges of not adequate, of not changing uh, the way a company works to incorporate those new uh, risks and challenges. Uh, uh, and and these this is very material. So uh, I do think that um, climate risks, uh, both uh, transition and physical, are and uh, should be on our radar screen. I think we cannot leave them uh, in the in a in a in a blind spot, and it will haunt us back if we are not fully aware of it. So the the first my first uh, uh, comment would be it is material and it will materialize as credit risk. And if we don't pay attention to it, and some countries are more exposed than others, and unfortunately for, for us, and I speak here in the case of Mexico, we are highly exposed, I would say, to both physical and transition risks. And uh, we need to be mindful about that. So the, the, we cannot allow for um, these type of uh, shocks to materialize in a stronger and more severe fashion. We can do something about it. And we can also uh, not be mindful of uh, the potential risks for the financial system and the stability of the financial system. So the fact that it is not uh, a, a direct part of our mandate, that does not mean that we are uh, responsible for having stability in our financial systems and also avoiding uh, adverse scenarios. So uh, I think we should not lose uh, the perspective that even though there may be differences in enthusiasm around the agenda, this agenda, and I think we have seen this even in the political uh, dimension in the last years, and that enthusiasm may go up and down, I, I think we should not um, lose sight that the private sector, the regulation, that financial authorities and central banks could really move in a more clear and decisive way and steer these, uh, I would say, not necessarily conditional on politics. And politics sometimes are very enthusiastic and sometimes could be less enthusiastic about the agenda. I think if regulators and the financial sector, asset managers, financial institutions, we all incorporate this in our standard way of doing things, I think we will go a long way. And, and, and that's what I think also central banks should try to, to incorporate this as the standard way of doing things. Uh, Governor, without uh, you know, trying to uh, uh, be dramatic about it, I think what you just said is the, the most succinct way I've heard the case being argued and this is very useful to us at Toronto Center because when we try to build the capacity of financial regulators, regulators and supervisors, getting past that question of what do I why do I have to do it, my mandate and all that is a big lift. But essentially the way you're articulating is that, you know, this is very much part of climate risk in a way that we all kind of intuitively know, but you put it in a vocabulary that is readily understandable. A question, thank you. A question here from our friend uh, from uh, Global Affairs Canada, Kerry Max. Uh, this is a question for the Bank of Canada. Given the temperature trajectory is not likely to be much higher than previously thought, are your scenarios sufficiently flexible to adequately price the much higher downstream risk of non or delayed action? Thank you. So I, our scenarios right now only look at transition risk. We do not capture physical risk. So I think that's that's where the question's coming from. So uh, no, implicitly, because we were ignoring fiscal risk at the moment. Um, um, but the trajectories are to be so that the economy as a whole will be aligned with uh, 1.5 in by 20, uh, 2000 and, 2100. 
Um, so, and, and these are kind of standard kind of uh, scenario uh, building blocks that we use for that are they're, uh, largely in the NGFS, but also in various UN and other kind of foundational kind of uh, science-based kind of uh, processes. So uh, quick answer is no. Okay, thank you. Uh, there's a question here from a courageous anonymous uh, attendee. Sheila, I think I'm going to give this to you because you don't represent any specific government, but you sort of sit on the top of it and you have a lot of experience in various public settings. So I guess the question for you as uh, the, uh, I guess as a representative of all of us, do you feel socio-political pressures and could mandates evolve as a consequence? That's a very good, uh, excellent question. I think two answers to that. Um, one is clearly there's a lot of um, political pressure both ways, right? Both in terms of doing something, but also in terms of the costs of action. So one of the key issues is going to be how we have what is called just transition policies to overcome the political economy obstacles and addressing fairness concerns, because obviously there will be winners and, and losers um, during the, the transition process. But I think the second point I want to raise is that, you know, the governor talked about medium term risks. I think what the current research shows is it's actually, and, and he said it's, they are here now. So I want to underline that what we are going to do between now and next four or five years is really going to be critical in deciding what we what degree goal we end up with by 2030. It's not like we need to take policies or do things after that, right? It's in this next five years that are going to be critical. So I think there will be a lot of social and political pressure to do something, but how we do it, how we make sure that it's done in a way which really gains, earns the trust of the public is going to be the, the critical um, issue that we all have to uh, deal with. And I can just tell you very briefly, what we have been looking at the IMF, um, there has, you have probably heard of this um, historic $650 billion SDR allocation, the special drawing rights, which came into effect in August, which was really critical to in increase um, global, um, reserves boost uh, reserves, official reserves across the globe, but also to support countries which are um, really needing the, the fiscal space, the reserve space and, and so on. Part of the action now, or part of the work that we are doing now, which is um, a highest priority for us, is to see voluntarily, some of the advanced economies are saying we would like to channel some of these special drawing rights, which are reserve assets to countries that needed and for structural transformation, including climate change. So we have been look, really working hard on this resilience and sustainability trust, which could be the IMS 20 year loans to support countries for what we call prospect, prospective balance of payments needs, because there will clearly be um, changes, policy changes that will require financing. So that's what we have been working uh, very hard on with uh, many member countries as well as um, other international institutions like the World Bank. Thank you very much, uh, Chela. 
Um, we have a question here from Debbie. Uh, Andres, I'm going to uh, pass it to you. I'm going to read the question and explain why I'm uh, forwarding it to you because you are like an unlikely candidate for the answer, but I think you'll see the logic. There appears to be consensus on the importance of climate disclosures. Should they be standardized or mandated? Typically, I would oppose this to a government authority, but you know, you represent the financial industry and governments, whenever they think about coming up with a, uh, you know, some kind of a mandate, they worry about the reaction from the stakeholders. Well, you are the stakeholder. Does it help your sector to have uh, standardized forms of disclosure that are mandated? Or do you think uh, some players would just use it as a checklist and say, oops, you didn't ask that question. So how would you approach this uh, issue? Thank you. Extremely important uh, issue, Babak. And, and, and the answer is in, it's a strong uh, and resolute yes, the need for standardization. But not only for financial sector companies' disclosure, but I would say corporate disclosures in general. Um, one of the big challenges for financial institutions in terms of managing the risk is the lack of data, you know, the, the data gap issue that, that Sheila was referring to. And that is because for listed companies, there is a little bit of or, or good information on, on the scope one and two um, emissions, very little on three. But once you go outside listed companies, there are no, there is no availability of, of information. But if we can, for listed companies and for financial institutions, standardize as much as we can, that is going to be a, a tremendous uh, level of progress. Um, I guess the initiative that has been announced in Glasgow this week uh, of, of establishing this global um, sustainability standards board and, and the draft um, paper and, and set of recommendations that is um, being issued and, and, and finalized next year is going to be instrumental in this standardization. Um, voluntary versus mandatory. Um, I guess while it is evolving, uh, the voluntary nature is, is, is adequate like TCFD. But I, I, I do feel that, that we're going in the direction of mandatory disclosures, um, certainly here in the US, for example, with the SEC. So I think that's the direction of travel. But for that, we need a strong um, uh, quality uh, standard uh, for it. And that, that's what is being developed. And generally speaking, whenever you look at a, some sort of a consensus uh, view of membership type based organizations, uh, unfortunately, it gravitates towards the lowest common denominator. So if it's mandated, then the, the industry can good players can voluntarily exceed that, right? So it's actually better for everyone overall. Thank you. We have a follow-up question from Kerry. Governor, I'm gonna pass this to you because uh, in your capacity as a central bank governor, you have a lot of say in the World Bank and IMF at the world uh, the, uh, at the board level, maybe even the Inter-American Development Bank. So the question is, um, as a follow-up on the suggestion of a new asset class and leveraging of multi-development banks or MBDs, what are, your views on the importance of multi-development banks securitizing parts of their portfolio to enable institution and pension funds to purchase these uh, credit acceptable investments? So that's the question. He goes on um, to say that, uh, I guess in his opinion, this would then provide billions of new resources to these banks to enable them to provide risk sharing capital into emerging economies to better incentivize private sector Co-investment. So, I mean, you can look at it as the answer being embedded, question being embedded in the answer. But what is your general view on this whole topic? Thank you. Well, I, I think that there is this is a huge opportunity. 
And um, I think uh, for a very long time, uh, what has dominated has been the approach of you put your project together and then look for the financing. And, uh, and that, that goes very slowly, to be very honest. And I think because of the physical and the transition risks that we are facing, this cannot be the approach towards how we finance uh, these greener technologies. I think we, we really have to put a different portfolio type of approach. I think uh, and, and the SDRs are a way to provide some type of uh, maybe uh, uh, could be put to work as a guarantee. There are other ways to put guarantees in place. Uh, I, I do think that what will do the trick to promote CapEx, uh, green CapEx throughout the world should be truly low cost of funds and long-term financing for these technologies, especially in emerging markets and developing uh, economies. So, um, and I'm sure the creativity of uh, MDBs and uh, national development banks uh, should be put to the test. And we should really deploy these resources in a, in a very significant scale. So I was mentioning um, understanding the new technologies and how Exim banks, they always have their, uh, their own financing for their own uh, technologies, but this can be done at a global scale. And I will tell you, I, I think it will even be pro-growth in terms of if you promote all of these financing uh, in, in throughout the world, uh, I, I, this would really would be, would also stimulate economic growth, would stimulate investment, and so on. So it, it has many many positive angles. So so if we just let the current uh, status of financing carry on, we will not meet uh, the targets. They, they they put your project together and, and and knock doors to see who can finance it is not going to deliver. I think we need we will really need not a bottom-up, but a top-down approach with uh, out-of-the-shelf financing uh, alternatives that could really uh, uh, accelerate things. Yeah, so in other words, we know what the problems are. We know that there's sufficient money to go around. All the developing countries are cash-strapped. So let's talk about deliberate policies that uh, funnel the money into the right direction. Thank you for yeah. that. There's another question here from another courageous anonymous. This time, the individual, Bob O'Brien, identifies himself at the end. So thank you, Bob, for that question. The first speaker talked about the need for investment into green technology to transition to low carbon economy. So Chela, I guess this is coming to you. From a financial regulator's perspective, I'm interested to know if there is work being done by IMF or others on capital treatment of such investments. Grateful if you could point us to some resources or initiatives. So I guess this kind of builds up on what the governor said. Chela, go ahead, please. So yes, um, I think uh, there is obviously there is a lot of work going on. Whether that's uh, capital treatment in the same in the sense of capital adequacy treatment, we discussed this before. I think we need some uh, foundation to be able to incorporate it in in the regulatory framework. But I think um, what I would like to uh, basically continue on is what the governor was talking about, that we are not talking about ODA or development lending for you know, specific project here and there. We're talking about a major global risk. And I think unless we accept that as a major global risk and, and potential crisis, we're not going to be able to um, address this issue. So a lot of the work is actually thinking through how to provide the framework, both in terms of the information, 
in terms of um, what are the key policies that needs to be in place for a just transition. And I think we shouldn't forget that part of it, just transition, and how the financing both from uh, public sources, but more importantly from the private sources can be uh, channeled uh, to, to this very important uh, investment that is pro-growth, pro-jobs and, and so on. And I think that's really uh, going to be critical. And I know we are soon going to um, uh, finalize Babak and I unfortunately have to run shortly, but I want to say something and you didn't, you didn't ask me to say it, but I will say it. I also want to thank you and the Toronto Centre for the vision because I used to be at the board of the Toronto Centre and these issues, climate related risks, financial stability issues, you were talking about five years ago. So my hat off to you and the Toronto Centre for the great work in on this issue and the really excellent hands-on training that you provide in many countries. So many thanks for that. Thank you very much, uh, Chela. And I remember you're one of the uh, supporters back then when others were going back in their chairs when these topics were coming on the board and other areas. But you know, we're all on full board. Thank you so much for that. Uh, there's another question here, Tony, I'm gonna pass this on to you. There's a lot of interest on these electrical vehicles. Uh, so the, the comment of investing more in green technology such as EV movement, how have or should uh, policy initiatives address the labor, financial, environmental cost of sourcing the green tech resources such as mining of lithium batteries and other minerals used in the manufacturing of EVs, couple that with all the supply chain <laughs> supply problems that we have. So let me just throw this very big question at you and uh, see if you have any thoughts on this. Thank you. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I'll, I'll take, I might not answer the question directly, but maybe more indirectly. I mean, the, the, the carbon pricing provides the incentive. So as cost to fossil fuel grows, uh, use of fossil fuels, for example, or other uh, highly intensive uh, emission producing uh, industries or, or products grows, the cost of those, <laughs> green or renewable types of inputs into green or renewable technology will look less. So, uh, so that's, that's how it works. Uh, but on, uh, just uh, to taking a step back, all these climate scenarios, the transition-based, uh, transition risk climate scenarios, find um, without taking into account uh, the benefits of lower climate uh, calamities, uh, find that the global growth is a bit weaker. Uh, over time with the, the imposition of, uh, of climate policies. Um, I, I, one of the things that are the, the, the more recent uh, work shows that if you invest in uh, productivity enhancing technologies or productivity enhancing uh, the economy, making the economy much more nimble and flexible, including in labor markets, for example, because there's gonna be, like I said, huge uh, broad macroeconomic restructuring that's going to happen if you make the economy much more nimble and more efficient and more productive. All those uh, you, you get, as, as the governor mentioned, you get actually more growth out of this uh, because you're, you're, you're investing in innovation and, and technology. So, um, so the, 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 the problem is, is you got to line up the policies. You have to, you have to get the, the, the incentives right. And, and, and that's and in, in the short term might feel very hard to swallow, but in the long term, uh, you have actually a lot more jobs. You have an economy that's uh, much more flexible. See, so these are kind of basic things that are good, but you're doing it for 
uh, the, uh, the restructuring that you need for climate. So yeah. it, uh, it's all it's, it's, it's a win win at the end of the day. That's great. Uh, I'm going to uh, thank you so much for that, Tony. That's very important. I'm going to try to bring this session to an end. There's no point in running on. We do have a lot more questions, but people have to leave. But a couple of quick observations is, you know, we're, it feels like we're sort of our backs are to, the, uh, are to a corner. And uh, despite all the talk and uh, blah, 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 that some people are talking about, you guys, all of you talked about concrete action. I've moderated many of these sessions and each of them is special, but this to me was a sensational panel because everything was so practical and Tony was very much a plumber to plumber conversation. And Andres, we included you in our um, uh, plumbing company in this one. And you know what, we are facing some um, hard breaks, breaks as in break of a car since we're talking about EV. So some are slowing us down. India, China, for very reasons, uh, uh, very good reasons. Uh, Chela talked about environmental climate justice. Well, you know, it's one thing for advanced industrial countries to have uh, carbonized the world since the late 1800s. It's another thing for 40% of the world's population today, two countries that represent 40% of the world's population today say we need more time, right? But these issues are gonna go on and uh, you give us hope that some of the best minds are working on this. Thank you so much. This was fantastic. You really kicked ass. Namaste, and we hope to see you again at another Toronto Center event. Bye-bye.